0: Hello and welcome to the Sonic Sema podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me once again at www.sonic-sema.com as well as the Sonic Sema podcast YouTube channel. Again, you can, as always, you can check out the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether it's Apple, Good Pod, Spotify, um, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, those are the main ones, um, especially since. Google Podcasts is no more, but also you can check out the, uh, more on the Sonic Podcast YouTube channel, including quick takes of reviews. I've gotten several done over the, uh, past few weeks when it comes to, uh, potential Oscar nominees and, uh, and current actual Oscar nominees. So, uh, that's, that's kind of a good place to, uh, pick up as far as, um, the listening to the podcast. You can also check us out at Patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There you will get early access to reviews, including for two of the movies that we're talking about today. Um, we are, in addition, you can also get series such as Leaving the Collection and Life Soundtrack. And uh, coming up, we will have uh, Oscar nominated. Nash Nation Discussions. That is at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. So, today is going to be a uh, really interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to having this one. Uh, once again, we are joined by a uh, frequent guest, uh, Phil Faso. And this is a subject that he wanted to bring to the podcast. I'm really glad that we're going to be getting into. It, it is the uh, life and work of Joseph Cotton, the uh, terrific actor from Hollywood's Golden Age, best known for his collaborations from, with Orson Welles, but also he also has a couple of other fantastic performances that we will be talking about. But um, for now, uh, let's get started. And Phil, how are you doing today?
1: I couldn't be better, Brian. Thank you so much for asking. how are you
0: i I am hanging in there. it's uh you know my my new job is kind of keeps me on my toes as far as where I go, but I'm looking forward to uh being able to settle in on this conversation and looking forward to talking about uh three really fantastic films with you.
1: And it's kind of funny that you mentioned Oscars twice during your intro there, because Joseph Cotton, for all his fabulous talents, never won an Oscar. And that is
0: unfortunate because of the fact that he is such a fantastic talent. And I would argue there are at least a couple performances in this um in in this uh group of three that he should have at least been nominated for. He didn't even get a nomination for the Oscars, which just baffles my mind. Um, But uh, first... I wonder,
1: wonder, and again, this has always been my speculation about Cotton. I always thought that maybe people looked at him more as a product of Orson Welles Mm -hmm. than as an actor on his own. And I think that may have held him back in things like Oscars and those sorts of things. Cause really, I mean, it was really the genesis, obviously, you know, he was in Florida. He's doing local theater. He's doing that sort of thing. And then he hooks up with Orson Welles and Orson Welles is, Orson, you know, Orson Welles trajectory is just for the stars and Cotton's along for the ride, but Cotton's not just along for the ride. He's really a, a, a massive contributor yeah. to Orson Welles and Orson Welles success. So I always kind of like wondered if that, if if the connection with Wells held Cotton back from Oscar nominations and those sort of things. If people saw him not just as Joseph Cotton actor, but Joseph Cotton actor as a as an offshoot of Orson Welles. And we're gonna get to the Third Man, which Orson Welles did not direct. Orson Welles wrote uh, one little piece for. Orson Welles is in the movie for I think less than ten minutes. And people still talk about Orson Welles' speech in that movie more than anything else that Cotton did. In that flick. Yeah. So even there, even there, when Orson Welles isn't the the mind behind everything, Cotton's still in his shadow. So again, that's just food for thought. Those are just some of my ideas.
0: I definitely think that is a uh, I I definitely think that is an excellent point because I mean, obviously. Uh, his breakout in terms of films was Citizen Kane as Je- Jedediah Leland, uh, who basically was who basically kind of acted as uh, Orson Welles' uh conscience in that movie. And then he was the star of the magnificent Andersons, and like you said, the third man. Uh he he plays the main character, and we'll get to the third man. Um and he was also had an uncredited role I'm seeing in Othello as well as Touch of Evil. He played the uh he played a corner in Touch of Evil. So, yes. um you know, yeah, I mean I, I definitely think there's something to that. But I mean it I it's interesting because of the fact I mean he's somebody who very much has led movie Led movies in his career. But I wonder also if he's considered if part of the reason is also because of the fact that he's kind of considered a character actor whom people are just familiar with more in the background of movies and as part of ensembles as opposed to the uh, larger part of all, as as a main
1: Force in the movie, which is also interesting that you mention that because I would say that he would probably qualify as a character actor. But the three roles we're going to look at today are three different performances. Yeah, you can't just mix and match. It's not mm-hmm. like you're switching like a lot of character actors. You pull them out of one film and put them in another film. If you were switched their roles in two films, you'd have the same performance. You'd have the same basically character, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say that about these three films. The Cotton gives three very different performances here, each of which fits the movie like a glove. So
0: no, I absolutely agree with that. Um, One, the first thing I was going to ask you before we really start to dive into discussing uh, these films is, what was it about? What is it about Joseph Cotton that made you want to discuss him in? terms of a larger discussion on his work.
1: i'll equate this to a modern actor whom i very much love i will see anything that patrick wilson is in i think patrick wilson is a solid actor i think patrick wilson probably is never going to win an award for anything but patrick wilson is always going to give a great performance i'm always going to have fun watching him he can act yeah. And I, I think much the same way about Joseph Cotton.
2: Mm-hmm. I think Joseph
1: Cotton, and I happened to I think I happened to watch around that time that I suggested this I think that Third Man was on like TMC or one of those channels. And I happened to watch the Third Man. And I'm like, you know what? Brian and I have discussed several movies. We've discussed actors. You know, We just went through a whole thing with Dracula a few months ago. So we've discussed characters throughout films. But I really thought that Joseph Cotton merited a discussion, especially because I always have a great time having our discussions when we do this for your podcast.
2: Yeah. I think
1: it's a lot of fun. And I think that when we talk, you and I, when we talk, even during the conversations, like I have thoughts that I have coming in when we start the call, you know, but I'm propelled to think further and you and I kind of heighten the game. Like I think when I talk to you, I think that you make me react to certain things and we have certain ideas and it propels the conversation and lifts it. And I thought that Joseph Kahn would be a fascinating actor to talk about because he's a fascinating actor that doesn't get enough talk.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the so we're, we'll go ahead and get started. And thank you very much for uh, the compliments in there. I, I know I always get a lot coming at talking to you. You know, you mentioned the Dracula conversation. This this actually predates the Dracula conversation. Actually, we we've been talking about this conversation for a while, um, and uh, I'm glad we're finally at the point where we can do this. I mean, I I do wish we had been able to do this during uh, November of last year because of the fact that that would have been so all of these movies would have been perfect for like the whole whole Noir-Vember idea of covering film noir, and I think to a certain extent you can make the case that all three of these are film noirs in a lot of ways, Uh, one very explicitly and then the two somewhat indirectly, but because of the way that they handle their subjects, you can certainly make the uh, case for them.
1: Well, you know. it was funny, because I mentioned to you the other night when I finished watching Gathlet, I'm like, you know, we picked three mysteries, and you're like, yeah. oh my god, we <laughs> didn't even know this.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, looking at his uh, credits, I mean, one of the, I mean, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it to a certain extent, Um, we are not going to be discussing Citizen Kane in this in terms of the larger part of this discussion a because of the fact that i've already covered it twice on the podcast uh and b there's so much i i think it is important especially with an actor like cotton and i mean i do think to a certain extent that leland is probably the role that i would say cotton is probably best associated with still even after watching all three of these movies, which I think I would put his performances, at least in two of them, above his work in uh, Kane. Um, But he was also the lead in Magnificent Andersons. He was also in Duel in the Sun. He's also um, in, let's see, what else is very note.
1: Worthy. Uh yeah, he's not gonna mention Mario Obama's Baron Blood.
0: (laughs) I mean that's that's more that dude you're you're the horror person. That's more uh, that's that's more your bag. Um and you've seen Uh, it and I have not. So uh yeah. I mean but I mean the fact of the matter is yeah, and he did so he did Barren Blood, he did Soylent Green later and life um whisper in the dark airport 77 i mean grant some of these movies are very much you know an actor you know kind of something that an actor would naturally kind of you know do at the end of their lives in order to you know still be working i mean but also one of his last movies i completely forgot he was in the movie he's in heaven's gate was one of his last movies um But the films that we are going to be discussing are, I think, three really rich discussions, not just for Cotton in particular, but because of the fact that they are all just truly fantastic films. We are going to start with 1944's Gaslight, directed by George Cukor and starring Ingrid Bergman as a singer who's aunt was brutally murdered and she and uh she and uh paula uh bergman's character meets an accompanist while she is in italy and they fall in love and they get married and they go home to live in her aunt's old home and gradually, uh, Paula begins to lose her grip on reality. And, you know, obviously, we there's a modern connotation to the phrase gaslighting. It came back in Vogue several years ago with the election of Donald Trump. You know, and it basically to gaslight somebody is to make them, it, it, it basically is to make them feel like what they're seeing with their own eyes, what they're uh, feeling in terms of their emotions is not real. And it is basically a, a form of psychological torture. And this was my first time uh, watching it, actually. And it's not going to be the first time we talk about it actually, on the uh, podcast. We'll be talking about it. Uh, Later on in the year. With in another context. But I have to say. I was absolutely. I was absolutely. Captivated by. This movie from. The get-go. And there are just so many tremendous performances. In this movie. And Cotton in this movie. Plays a. Man who. Recognizes Paula. As her aunt's niece and is concerned for her and there's a sense of concern for her immediately and he plays a uh, he plays a police inspector and he basically starts to uh put together the uh the pieces of the uh mystery that uh Ingrid Berman's character is finds herself in
1: so, I wish that every discussion of the movie, or even blurbs about it, the blurb on Amazon and the blurb on IMDb, both pretty much give it away. Yeah. Um, and we're fully in spoiler territory here. Yeah. Um, so, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm ruining the movie for anybody, but just order the IMDb or pull it up on Amazon and you're going to get it. Hey, listen, a woman is... Um, Led to believe that she's insane by her husband. And the problem with that is that that gives away the movie. Yeah. If you watch it, and I was trying to watch it in terms, because this was the, I've seen the other two movies before that we're going to discuss. I hadn't seen this one until the other night. And I pulled it up and I'm like, I'm trying to put myself in the mind frame of the character, her, as opposed to putting myself in, I know what the, the twist is here. Yeah. Because when I go through it that way, It's, it's, it's weird because he had the husband played by Charles Boyer, who also gives an excellent performance in my estimation. Yeah. Um, he's starts off and it seems like he's caring and she's just forgetful. Mm -hmm. So you realize that she has been through some stuff, you know, and, and we're first introduced to her in a meeting where she's singing with her, her, um, instructor her teacher. Right. And her teacher basically tells her, and it's a brilliant setup that I don't think many people might catch, he says, oh, I can tell that your mind's really not on the singing. Like, something must be going on in your life. Yeah. So right there, are you're that she's in an offset frame of mind, that she maybe is not everything she needs to be. And I think that's brilliant. And I think many people might miss that when they're watching this the first time. I caught on that. And now when she gets to her husband's, So little things are happening. He gives her a brooch. She says, I'm going to, he very specifically says, I'm going to put it right here because you're forgetful and then it'll be safe. And then she, quote unquote, loses the brooch, right? Yeah. And then she's forgetting this and she's forgetting that. And he keeps telling her, Oh, you're forgetful. You can't go out because, you know, you might not make it back, you know, those sorts of things. You need to be cared for. You need to stay in the house, mm-hmm. right? So now he's made her his prisoner. But if you're not, if you don't know the twist right off, like it builds up gradually. Yeah, it takes a while before they get in an argument, and he's telling her, "No, you can't do this," mm-hmm. or "No, you you're <clears throat> sick. Can't try. Can't trust you to do this. You can't yeah. be trusted because you're not on top of your game. You're not there mentally, right?" Yeah. So. The thing is, it's it's a it's a gradual buildup, and about halfway through the scene, she wants to go someplace, and he explodes on. her. And then it becomes all right. Here's where he starts to turn the screws. Now he's not just caring. Now he's becoming. Now you can see the shades, even if you don't know what the giveaway is. That there's manipulation going on here, and this isn't just him being caring. Now he's being controlling. And when does that line cross over? Yeah. One is too much caring, one is controlling. So if you're looking at it at data from that angle, then it's a little different than saying, oh, this is a movie about gaslight. Which the title gives away only because as you said, it's become a psychological term now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a brilliant opening opening shot because the opening shot is the credits over actual gaslights. Yeah. Now, I don't know if people in your audience are going to know what a gaslight is, so this film was shot in, I don't remember, was it the 30s or the 40s? 40, uh, this
0: would have been 40s, yeah. The So the original play that this is adapting was in 38. But yeah, the film is uh, 1944, so yeah, it would have been the 43-44. So.
1: Yeah, the 80 years ago. Yeah. So... It's, it's filmed in 1944, actually takes place in the 1880s, about 40, 60 years before that. So before electricity was such a popular thing, and again, I'm not on us, but on, on when electricity became well spread. But you'd have gas built in to go into houses, and then you would turn a little knob on a light, like there'd be a little knob on there that you'd turn, like a regular light switch. Uh, where you turn the knob, and then you'd increase or decrease the gas. Yeah. So the actual, it's just, it's a brilliant, it's it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant opening scene because you're actually watching gas lights being turned on and up and down. And but, that's going to come into play toward the end because yeah. the gas is shared across the house. So it's not like you flip on one light in one room and then another light in another room like in modern day and you have the same light. When you flip on one light, like if I were to flip on my light here or come full left, if my sister were to turn it on in her room, that's gonna distribute the gas and gas lights. So my light is actually going to become less less uh less illuminated. Yeah. Later. Anyway, I don't want to get too gigged out on gaslighting, but yeah, yeah, that's the whole thing with gaslights. <laughs> well I just think that's like everything in this film, Cougar sets up for what's coming later. Yeah, and if you're not aware of what's coming, it's actually a very—I think it's a brilliant setup what he does here.
0: It is, and I mean, just just you—you you mentioned that it very much reveals itself gradually. I mean, even if you are aware of the twists, even if you are aware of the concept of what this movie is, I think that still works exceptionally well. And I, a big part of that is Cooker as a director, who's a fantastic director. Uh, We talked about his uh, film, The Women, on here a couple of years ago. And um, he is an absolutely wonderful director of women. He's very well known for his direction of women. And this was a performance where Ingrid Bergman won an Oscar for deservingly so. She's fantastic in this movie. Uh, you mentioned uh, Charles Boyer as uh, Gregory Anton, the uh, character of uh, Paula's husband. Um, I I think this is easily one of the... I think this is easily one of the best villains in movie history. I, I would very much put in, maybe not in the top five, but at least the top ten as far as villains. I, I love the way... I mean, it's... Right away, we do kind of get get an idea that we shouldn't necessarily be trusting this character, but I think that is... As we start to see more and more of what he does to Paula, I, I think that's where the brilliance of Boyer's performance comes out and just how he's able to be very menacing but also very very convincing in being able to manipulate uh paula as a character and it's 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 really a fascinating it's it's a brilliant performance it i mean all of the performances in this movie are fantastic but i mean i i think boyer is amazing in this and you know if, if we're talking about the true you know, you mentioned the gaslights and uh, part of the reason that this is the title of the play is because one of the things that he, Boyer does Anton does as a character as he starts to uh, really starts to strip away Paula's sanity is he, he gets the gaslights turned down and he and he basically and Paula notices this and when Paula confronts him about it, he's like, Oh no, you don't know what you're talking about. No, it's it's fine. It's all fine. That's where the title comes from. Um but yeah, this is this is such an I didn't realize just how close this I didn't realize just how much of a psychological thriller this was gonna be and it was absolutely captivating for me.
1: Well, here's the thing too. See, Boyer is great in this because he doesn't tip his hand early. Like it would have been very easy for a performer to go in and just be aggressive and screaming and you know, over the top with a role like this. But he shades it early like see here's the whole thing. If you like I said, if you don't know the giveaway. You don't know what the twist is. You can say to yourself, all right, well, here's a guy who is trying to take care of a woman who he's in love with. Okay, we've been told that. And he's basically at a point where he's got a wife who now is slipping. And he's got to be frustrated with that. And that anger, you know, that frustration can build up and turn into anger when you're basically somebody's caregiver. As well as their lover, right? And husband. Mm-hmm. And you can you can look at it that way too. And then the manipul but like it's it's I think it's about halfway into the film when you really start to realize that this is something's off here with him. Yeah. Like even even if you don't know the twist, that at about the halfway point you say, All right, well, now this is just like now he's just manipulating and he's pretty much being a dick. Yeah. There's a point <laughs> where it, she wants to. She wants to put more wood on the fire, right? Mm-hmm. And that scene is excellent because it shows how cruel he can be, right? So he makes her call one of the servants, played by Angela Lansbury, by the way. Yeah, yeah. and I think this is
0: one of her first performances too. I think this is. I think this is one of her first movies too.
1: I think it is. Yeah. So of a long, great career, everyone from my generation associates her with murder. She wrote because I'm an '80s kid. Yeah. But yeah, she had a long sterling career for a very long time between Hollywood and Broadway. So she the, the and she's already convinced that the the char- the um the maid doesn't like her, right? Yeah. So she's like, no, no, don't, Anton, don't make me call her. Don't make me call her. And he says, no, 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 you're not supposed to do this. This is why I hire people, right? Yeah. So he's controlling right there. The maid comes in. She's she's now angry because she's got to come up and stairs and do something that, you know, obviously Paula could very much do herself. And you can see the resentment between the two of them. They, they yeah. clearly don't like her. Right? Mm-hmm. And basically, he then turns it into an argument once that's done. Now, he's already got her off base. She didn't want to call the girl. The girl's resentful of her. And then this blows up into a whole argument about how she doesn't like the girl. And, you know, basically Boyer's character is like, hey, listen, you know, I'm the man of the house here. And I need to have things run a certain way. And this is how they're going to run. And this is how you need to run when when I'm not here. And that whole thing is him starting to tighten his grip. And it's just... It's, it starts to... It's, it's psychological sadism is what it is, pretty much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I when you realize that when you realize that this whole thing, when you realize what the payoff of this is supposed to be, and we can talk about that later, when you realize what the payoff of this is supposed to be and why he's going through all this, like, there have to be easier ways to do what he needs to do <laughs> than all he <laughs> through. Yeah. And less cruel ways, obviously, to do what he needs to do, you know?
0: I mean, let's also, let's also, uh, because I mean, you know, we're, we're not giving the entire game away, but I mean, we are also, you know, there's also a very specific reason why he chose her, you know, there's also a very specific reason that why she chose her that I think is important to consider when it comes to, uh, when it comes to this movie in general. So, um yeah you know, but yeah i I do want to get into, yeah, and this was Angela Lansbury's debut in films, and it's it's funny because of the fact that like this is three movies now from her you know decades as an actress well before as a movie actress, well before murder she wrote, where I've seen her in, and she's basically. Playing a villain in a way in all three of them, like I don't, it, It's debatable just how much of a villain she is in this movie. Uh, she she just I know we know she doesn't necessarily like uh, Bergman's character. But I don't know how villainous she is. Uh, in 1955, she was in a film noir that I reviewed a couple of years ago called My Life at My Life at stake, which was absolutely terrific. And she kind of plays the femme fatale character. And then, obviously, her most famous film role in The Manchurian Candidate, where she is, again, one of the best... Vi- in, truly one of the best villains in movie history. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it it is the... You you're you're right. Like there's got to be an easier way of getting through this, but you know, again, there's a very specific reason that he that we haven't really discussed as to why this is why he is going through this to do what he's trying to do. And, well, real quick
1: before yeah. we get into that, um, as far as Angela Lansbury's character goes, she's so here's the thing with her, okay. It's revealed in one scene that there's some sexual tension here because she she she's portrayed as somebody and she's it's mentioned several times that, hey, she goes out with pretty much every guy in town. So the loose morals thing that would be in the 40s, I mean, we don't, she's not supposed to judge people that way a lot of times. Right. But she would be, you know, considered a, a loose woman, you know? Yeah. So she comes yeah. on to, boy, character at one point, he doesn't take it he doesn't take the bait because he's got more grander schemes than that. Right. But the whole thing is that she is definitely looked upon as a character of loose morals. Mm-hmm. So judging by the moral compass in the 40s, she would have been looked at as not a not a good character. She yeah. She's not really a, or a villain per se. But, you know, like the, one of the first things that, that our inspector here, um, Joseph Cotton, does is get one of his officers onto this particular detail that covers this house. And he has her. It's implied that that officer is sleeping with her to get information. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just she's not. And she's, you know, you think of her as murdered, and, and, again, it's impossible. I know. I've seen her in other things, and I try not to judge her this way. But it's impossible to see her and not think of murder she wrote in my mind, you know. That's so ingrained. No doubt. That show was on forever. My grandmother watched that show when she stayed with us on the weekends in the eighties when I was a kid. And it's impossible to not think of her as this, you know, old lady detective who has the best of things in mind for everyone. He's trying to try to solve every world's mystery, you know? But seeing her in this role is particularly enjoyable because she's not. Like she's Mm -hmm. pretty nasty. She's yeah. not a nice character at all. And they play her off against the older maid because the older maid is nice and caring and sweet. So it's that dichotomy there between those two. Like, it, I just think that everything in this movie is brilliantly set up. But I, I'm got to go track, so go ahead, Brian.
0: Well, you know, let, let's go ahead and talk about Cotton's part in this role, in this movie, because of the fact that I love... I love the fact that we are introduced to his character... Not as a police detective, but just as somebody who admired uh, Paula's aunt, and was very. And one of the things that I love in the introduction of him in this movie is that you you get the sense that he has a lot of empathy, not just because of the fact that he's with his niece and nephew at the time, but the fact that you can tell in his face that there's something when paula and gregory pass by him there's something he 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 senses that something's wrong and i love that this comes from an emotional perspective from in terms of cotton's character than just a simple police procedural uh factor i mean it does become that and that part is added but it's not the most important part and i think that is i think that's a big part of why when cotton ultimately confronts bergman in this movie that scene works as well as it does because of the fact that he's coming at from an emotional perspective more than just a procedural police perspective.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. There's an emotional involvement. There's a human element to it. So like you said, the fact that he's with his niece and nephew grounds him as a human being. He's not just a cop at that point. Mm -hmm. Like the other two police officers, the commissioner and the guy that he puts on the detail there, they're both cops. That's all they are. But he's got that human element. And it's like, hey, listen, I saw, this, I saw your aunt play when I was very, very young. And, you know, I asked to go and meet her, and she gave me one of her gloves. And mm-hmm. he still has the glove. Now, I'd like to see if you can explain his character to me in this note. Um, I don't understand why an American is a chief inspector in London. <laughs> I don't understand how he's... I think he's got the connections to high society through his parents, he says, right? Because he's, he's basically, like, he goes to this very lavish party at yeah. one point with hundreds of people and there's a personal performance by some famous pianist. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where is he... Like, this is the weirdest character for <laughs> him to play. He's an American who's playing a fucking... He's an American. I support my language. He's an American who's playing a, a cop in Britain. He's, an, he's playing an American in Britain who is a British cop and he's supposed to be like a, a cop and he's got all these fancy high society connections. So I can't really piece any of that together. I kind of say, alright, well, maybe, maybe this role was originally written for somebody British. I can see that. I, I would and imagine I so. It. And
0: he... And it was a matter of him just being the best part. He Him just being the best choice for the part as opposed to and he probably would have had a certain degree of uh, cachet when it comes to box office because of Kane because of Magnificent Ambertons he would have been somebody that audiences were aware of at the time. Sure. So yeah, I mean but I mean, look, let's let's be perfectly honest. I mean, we're let let's let's be let's be clear that, you know, the idea of Americans playing characters in England, let's let's not act like that's something that Hollywood has always been,
1: you know, good with.
0: And I mean I I, I, I
1: suppose I suppose it wouldn't stick out so much. I, I kinda let it go because I'm like, you know what, this is a great movie. This is my only gripe with this movie. Right. And I'm like, you know what, this is I'm small and consequential. The role was probably written for a bread. And basically, they probably hired the, the most talented guy, uh, you know, who's going to have some box office draw to play the yeah. part. All yeah. that makes sense. But I'm like, it wouldn't bother me so much if he were playing a Brit in this role, but he's not. He's clearly American. Clearly American. I, American. I will say I admire them
0: for at least not going, hey, how's your, hey, could you do a British accent? Because... Let's be clear, I mean, if he does if he tried to do a British accent and he didn't necessarily oh, do a good job, been, yeah. it it'd be all we think about. So, I mean, I I I'm I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I'm ultimately fine with the choice just because of the I fact also, that he's terrific in the role.
1: I also kind of appreciate that they don't have the three minute thing where somebody says to him hey you're a British cop why are you here from America Oh yeah. and then he goes with an explanation just to tie it up Like it, it would have stopped the movie to a dead hole for absolutely no purpose Yeah. give this guy 30 seconds in the background so I'm fine with that it just sticks out but again yeah. great performance I'm not arguing about that um, and the thing is that we're going to talk about this in the next one when we talk about um, Third Man Cotton's character here you know, Officer Cameron, is ahead of the game. Here, yeah. Right? He knows what's going on. He's piecing it together. And he's well aware of it before anybody is aware that he's onto this, before Paula knows any of this, because obviously she's been set up to the point where she's, you know, being convinced that she's insane. Right? Yeah. To yeah. So the point where Anton says toward the end of the movie, he's like, look, I'm going out. And basically, if you keep acting like this, some men are going to come to the house. So when, when when Cotton's character shows up and insists on going and talking to her, she thinks he's going to commit everyone in the same asylum at that Yeah. Point. yeah. It's interesting because, like, a lot of times movies spell out things for you and spell out things for the characters, but what characters do and don't know here is kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, Anton doesn't know that anybody's onto him at this point. Yeah. His wife had because she says, I know I didn't leave the brooch. I know I didn't move that picture off the wall that was always there because you can see the outline of the you know, the dust on the wall and it's clear for the picture mm-hmm. where the picture was. And we're kind of saying to ourselves at that point, well, yeah maybe she didn't because this is starting to seem like a manipulative sort of thing here. Yeah. Um, but Anton also doesn't know that he he, doesn't, he knows that Cameron exists because he sees Cameron well the Cameron is uh, Cotton's character. He yes. sees Cotton in the park and he's instantly suspicious about it. And when she wants to go to that, that big thing, that big uh, soiree with the pianist playing the the famous pianist, yeah. I think Anton says to her, What? Do you want to see that 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 guy there that was oh, yeah. in the park? Yeah. So I he's mean, playing it. He's playing it. He's playing off Cotton's character like, hey, I can use this to my advantage to manipulate her to make her feel like, hey, you have feelings from somebody other than me. All you tell me is you love me, you love me, you love me. Right? Yeah. But he also doesn't know that that Cotton's character is in on his brand overall scheme here. Mm-hmm. So what characters do and don't know is kind of fascinating. Yeah. Because when you get the Hollywood. Holly Martins in the next film we're going to talk about is so far behind the game that he only really finds out in the last, like, 15 minutes of the movie what's going on. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Detective Cameron here is hell-bent on putting all this information together. And there's a revelation about some jewels that come up, and that ties the whole thing together.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's... Uh i I think that is uh something that is really real it's it's something that's absolutely fascinating with this and you know it it's just such this this film is such a slow burn it's such a wonderful slow burn like you don't necessarily realize you you intellectually know something's going on with it but you don't necessarily realize what's going on with it. And until the movie's ready to tell you, and yeah, i mean the the fact that Gregory is uh using uh the character of Cameron in his game, not aware of what Cameron knows or what Cameron's figuring out it's it's just absolutely perfect um but you you already mentioned our next film, and i I think that would be a good way to segue to our next film it is the classic 1949 film noir directed by carol reed the third man based on
1: i'm sorry i just want to ask you before we move on one question about that last scene in in gaslight okay so the gig is up now. We find out that, and I found it fascinating, because I look at the IMDb on Charles Boyer and, and Ingrid Bergman, and I'm like, he's like 15 years older than her. Yeah. And I thought that was a little odd, and then I realized that plays into it, because she was the little girl on the stairs when he murdered the aunt, right? Yeah. So he murdered the aunt because he, he was the aunt's lover, and he was trying to get the jewelry, right? There's mm-hmm. these jewels yeah. In the Yeah, yeah. So much money, right? And again, um, Cotton and he fight, and they have a. It's, I don't think they really show much of it, but he opens the door in the attic, and he, he's got Boyer char, tied to a chair, right? Yeah. And he brings uh, Paula in, and he says, Look, we've got him now. We're going to take him away. And then she says, Look, can you leave me alone with him? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I really shouldn't do that. She's like, Look, I need to say some things here. I need to be alone. And Cotton says, "Okay, I'll let you do that." Right? <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that Cotton says to himself. His character has to say to himself, "Hey, look, this woman might do some nasty things in here while I have this door closed." Right. And I'm kind of like let that happen. Like that's what I read into that. Was your read on that
0: same? I I didn't necessarily know that. I mean, I didn't necessarily think about that ter- those terms. I I do think to a certain extent um, the caution I I do think the caution from Cotton's character and leaving her alone is more from a perspective of is she can I trust that she's she's not going to be able to be further manipulated by this character I I think that's more where it's coming from then a matter of oh he's gonna she's gonna to uh she she's gonna do something physically awful to him i i didn't necessarily
1: think I that only, was the case I, that only clicked in when she pulls out the knife <laughs> and she's like oh this is oh this knife that i don't have in my hand because it's a fantasy because then she's playing the whole thing about hey yeah you've taught me this entire time that i can't i have no real perspective on reality well, obviously, I don't have a knife in my hand to be telling me I have a knife in my hand. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time I've seen it, I'm like, oh my God, she's going to murder him and go to jail for this. And then she doesn't. So yeah. I just thought that that was an interesting way to let her. <laughs> and it's nice to see that she ultimately wins, even though she doesn't actually do anything to, to harm him or murder him. Yeah. They take him away at yeah. the She's got some... Because they have that scene at the, uh, the, the very end scene is her and Cotton on the balcony outside on the the roof and he basically says to her hey listen, sometimes things that happen in the night you don't even realize like they just kind of disappear when the sun comes up. Yeah. And I think that's his way of saying to her is hey listen, you know, you're going to get back to where you need to get to. It's going to take some time but this is just going to be a dark part of your life that you'll eventually move past. I thought that was a great thing for his character and her character as well. Because it gives her some optimism And it lets him tie up his feelings for the end and what he's done here with the investigation. So just top-notch ending for a top-notch film, I'd say.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So we are going to transition to Carol Reed's The Third Man, written by Graham Greene, and uh, starring Joseph Cotton. He plays uh, Holly Martins, an author who comes to post-war Vienna to stay with his friend Harry Lime and finds out almost immediately that Harry Lime has been found dead and one of the first places we see Holly's go to Holly goes to go to is Harry Lime's funeral and throughout the rest of the film we we basically fil- follow uh, Holly as he is gradually being led into Lyme's world and the mysteries surrounding Lyme's death, because apparently there might have been a third person who found Lyme's body and we don't necessarily know who that is. And this, this movie is fascinating. This was not the first time I had seen this. i had seen this years ago. Um, One of the things that is really fascinating about this is the fact that the Vienna it sets up here is basically split between several different countries. Like, there are several different countries where, like, they have, you know, they have jurisdiction jurisdiction. over different parts of the city, and I think that's fascinating, and it's, it's one of the things that leads, I think, to the... Confusion surrounding Harry Lawns' death, and we see Holly get involved with a uh, with Harry's girlfriend Anna, played by uh, Alita Valley. And uh, at first, she seems very unsure of who Harry. Sometimes she seems as unsure of who Harry is as anybody in the movie. But as the film progresses, we start to realize she probably knows more than she's laying on. And being film noir, that basically is kind of the, the way it is. So
1: so I'd like to mention that in a previous discussion, we discussed, you and I on your podcast here, we discussed The Bicycle Thief, yes. right? Yes. So the bicycle thief is a very—it's a tragic, it's a very sad film. It's, and the thing is that it is set in post-war, um, post-war Italy, where you know poverty is on the rise. Everyone's trying to get a job. The poor guy, his his sole lifeline to doing work is his bicycle. And his bicycle gets stolen. Mm-hmm. Here we get a post-war view of Austria, particularly Vienna. And I found this fascinating in contrast, because these are two very, very different movies, The Vice of the Thief and The Third Man. The Third Man, and there's a speech at the beginning, which I believe is voiced over by George Cooper himself, I read somewhere, I think. Um, that speech at the beginning basically says, hey, listen, so Vienna has been split into four different territories, four different jurisdictions. I know it's the Russians, it's the American... No, it's the Russians, the British the French, and I can't remember who the fourth one was. Um, So the whole thing is that the city has been split into four different jurisdictions, and there's so much going on here in this war-torn, previously war-torn Vienna that it's very hard to figure what's going on here with the law, right? They're all trying to establish law within their quadrants. And because of this confusion and because of the four different quadrants and because of the movement of things between them, there is basically a huge black market that has risen up mm-hmm. in the in the wake of the end of World War II, right? Yeah. Which is going to play a huge part into this film because it, it it's all about... The film is basically about how this this American he comes there to see his friend, Harry Lyme, you know, and Holly says, I came here because, you know, Harry, Harry says he was going to give me a job, right? Yeah. Because I'm a... Um, uh, So, Holly Morris is a really interesting character because he's basically a a dime store novelist. Yeah. He writes these westerns, and there's this running gag where one of the British soldiers keeps mentioning the novels, how he's a big fan, whereas Calloway, our our main uh, British guy, doesn't have any need for these novels, right? Because he's got enough in the real world right now. But Mm -hmm. that particular point of view is really interesting because... He's a very American author. He's writing about very American things because he's writing about westerns, right? Yeah. But you get the idea that he's writing these dime store, trite, you know, tropolin novels about westerns because it's the naive American view, right? That's mm-hmm. really what it is, and that plays so much into his character. And it's interesting because, like I said, in in Gaslight, Cotton's character is so far ahead of the game. Here in the third man, he's so far behind the game, trying to figure out what's going on, and he really doesn't piece it together. well we'll talk about that later, but yeah, yeah yeah
0: well i I think i I think Martins is such a fascinating character in this movie, and he's such a fascinating protagonist and in part because of what you're saying about him, but also i i he i I think to a certain extent, he is somebody. He he feels very world-weary in this movie. He feels like somebody who oh, yeah. doesn't have a sense of direction. And I I think you could make the case for that being very uh emblematic of how a lot of people feel fell after World War II. They they weren't and especially with all of the destruction in Europe, like how how do you, like, because, I mean, you get the sense that he's there. Like you said, he's there because Ari was going to get him a job. It's like that basically means he's not leaving anything very pressing behind in his previous life. So he's... No, I
1: get the feeling that he's not very proud of the writing he does. I, yeah. Look, I've been writing my entire life. and Every time I sit down to write something, whether it's for... When I was writing for Death Ensemble, when I'm writing a script or a story or whatever, I've always taken immense pride in my work, you know? Whereas Harry's – not Harry. Um, I'm doing what she does. I quote <laughs> Harry. <laughs> uh, Ollie here seems to be like, hey, he's just writing because he's got a particular talent with words that he can put to use. He's, I think he knows he's a hack, you know? Yeah. And he just, like, doesn't care. Like Like you said, there's nothing pressing for him in America. Mm-hmm. There's nothing pressing for him as a novelist. And it's kind of funny that several people in, well, the, the, the one soldier and then the, the guy who runs the literary society both seem to know that he's an author. Yeah. Which is really funny because I'm figuring that probably 99% of Americans don't know that this guy's an author at this mm-hmm. point, you yeah? know? Yeah. But his character, like you said, is fascinating because you can tell. He's, I mean, I can only imagine. Look, I had relatives long dead before I was alive. Who were in World War Two? You know, I can only imagine what a what a terrifying, horrifying, emotional, psychological devastation that must have put on the people of the world at that point. Yeah. You know, but it's really fascinating here because so apparently David O. Selznick wanted Kuk Coo- not Cooke, wanted Carol Reed to film this thing on sets on backlots. Yeah. And Kevin Reid was like, insisting, He's like, "No, I have to film this in Vienna." Yeah. Which is one of the greatest assets because the city of Vienna is a character here, right? Oh, absolutely. And one of the fascinating things is if you know, well, it gives you, it tells you at the beginning of that it's post World War II. But if you know about World War II, when you know about bombing and those things, like there are several scenes where characters are traversing these giant piles of bricks that are sliding down, or they're in the background, or, and I'm like. Okay, those used to be buildings. yeah. What well, just piles of brick because some construction worker left them around. Those used to be buildings. Mm-hmm. People used to live in those buildings. There may be body parts in those ruins. yeah that rubble so informative not just of this uh, not just of what the, why the characters are interacting the way they are, but what is going on with the city itself and why the city is the way it is. And it plays in perfectly with, mm-hmm. with the story.
0: No, absolutely. Think,
1: like, oh, Selznick wanted to do this on the cheap, apparently, and film if you had filmed this on backstages, I don't care if it was today or in the 40s, you never would have gotten the same cinema verite, you know. The, no. no, none of that would have come across. No, like, and uh,
0: you know, look, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, this is this is one of the quintessential film noirs and I I think a huge a huge part of film noir is the authenticity of the characters in the narrative but also the backdrop and also the landscapes and I mean one of the things that this film benefits from tremendously is obviously shooting on location in Vienna but also, the way Carol Reed uses the Dutch angle, the way he uses very deep black and white cinematography—oh, it's beautiful! It is, in the this is this is in a very real way. This movie gets to the heart of film noir in a way that a lot of film noirs at the time would have only dreamed of. And sure, you know, I mean, that's just talking about the location. That's not even talking about the story where you know i mean you can see holly martins to a certain extent as a as a film noir protagonist i mean it's not he's not the same type of protagonist as in almer's detour where it seems like everything they does just turns to bad luck he's somebody though but what he is, is he's somebody disillusioned with the world that he was living in and trying to find a different way in. And he arguably, it arguably leads him into a situation where is that is going to disillusion him further once he gets to the truth of, Harry Lyme, and Harry Lyme, of course, is played by Orson Welles in one of, the, one of his great performances of his career, if not his greatest.
1: Spot on perfect performance out of Welles. Look, I'm going to be honest. One of the reasons we're not talking about Citizen Kane is that I asked you that we don't talk about Citizen Kane. I have been a huge Orson Welles fan since I was a kid, and I hadn't seen Orson Welles' Citizen Kane for a long, long time. I think I was in my 20s when I finally saw it. Yeah. And then I sat to it, and I'm like, oh, my God, how is it that I love Orson Welles? This is like his universally resolved, renowned best film, and I can't stand this film. Like, it's so boring. I don't care about guys who want newspapers. I don't really associate with rich people the whole thing with Rosebud at the end. I'm like, this is it. This is what everybody talks about. <laughs> oh. But Orson Walls, I gotta give credit, is great. He plays that character at three different stages of life. He's thrown his all into it. This is his everything. But I would put Harry Lime as a... I would put Harry Lyme as his best performance. I love him in this movie. And it's such a small part, but he owns it, and it's integral to everything that's going around with him. Yeah. And... Interplay between him and and Joseph Cotton is just it's beautiful. You that scene can, I will talk about that scene on the carousel. You, you am not get it. I mean, so, that, there we
0: go. One There's of the things, thing one of the things that is fantastic when you have a, I mean, this is that the the scenes between Cotton and Wells in here, um, I mean, they really do I think play off of what iconography. The dynamic between Wells and Cotton had because of Kane and because yes. of Magnuson and Ambersons. It's like you can tell that those actors have a mutual respect for one another, as show as a scene contributor, as scene players, as as co co stars, and. You know, you the way the, it's a very natural progression the way that that the discussion between Holly and Airline uh plays out. I mean, I would I I still lean more towards uh Quinlan from Touch of Evil as the oh, best that performance, is probably but probably my
1: I, second favorite performance,
0: yeah. That's but a now great, that great but one. now that I've rewatched uh the third man I can completely understand why Harry Lyme is considered one of his greats. He is,
1: he is tremendous. The thing is, the thing is that Joseph Cotton is playing the protagonist in this film. Yeah. But even though that Orson Welles didn't direct this and he only wrote the cuckoo speech, which is we'll talk about that. That's a great <laughs> speech. But he, he's in the thing like I said, I think his, his screen time is probably 10 minutes in an hour and 45 minute film. Maybe. If, yeah. the, if that yeah. But the thing is, or, this is an Orson Welles' film. It really is. I mean, the whole thing about it is, you know, it's all revolving around his character. When he shows up, he owns it. And I love the very last thing we see of him, which we'll talk about once we get to the ending. But again, you know, Orson Welles was a fascinating actor. And it's a shame that, you know, at the end of his career, on the downward slide there, he's doing Paul Masson commercials, and he's drunk, and they had to film it 57 times for him to get his one line down. You know, in his very last film role, I saw in the theaters, I have to say, the Transformers the movie. Yeah, same. He Unicron. <laughs> no, My same. My mom took us to see that when we were kids, and I'm like, I knew the voice, because I knew him from the commercials <laughs> when he we was on The Muppet Show. And I'd always started citizen pain. I'm like, this is just amazing.
0: Yeah. No, I mean it's it's a, well and the thing is it's like Wells, I think Wells had an appreciation for film noir's narrative. I and then as a narrative uh, structure to play in. Cause I mean, he he directed film noir. It's not just Touch of Evil, he also directed the Stranger, he directed the lady from shanghai and i mean yeah he he's somebody who really saw the the storytelling potential to get to some some of these uh weighty humanist subjects in terms of in term sorry in in terms of uh like really uncovering seedier sides of uh, characters i mean which is you know and really you could almost consider in a way you could almost consider just and kane of film noir because of the fact that it is talking it is really exploring the the way a character devolves into a shell of who he is who you who, who he thought he was and who he could have been
1: Orson Welles was fascinating, and I still I, I still think he's one of the greatest filmmakers today.
2: Mm-hmm. He's
1: always captivating when he's on screen, even when he's doing, you know, in, in, under makeup, or he's, you know, in this... If you've ever seen the original version of his, Macbeth, he does a Scottish accent that's absolutely bizarre, you know? <laughs> but... I loved Orson Welles because every one of his film was looking into the flaws of characters. Like, he's always playing flawed humans. He's obsessed with flawed humans. And, like, even Ambersons, the next film that he makes with, with Cotton after, Citizen Kane. It's about a flawed family. It's about the darker side of, of the American dream, a lot of what he does. And mm-hmm. that fits in perfectly clear. Because yeah. Harry Lund is an American who's come to this country, Right? He's come to Vienna, and it's never really shaken out why at the beginning. But then you find out that he's dealing in some very underhanded stuff with some very underhanded characters, and yeah. that leads to his quote-unquote Mm-hmm. And this is the greatest movie to have two funeral themes for a the same um, Orson Welles character. <laughs> Don't say that. Yeah. So Harry Lyme has come to... Um, Vienna here and got involved in the black market, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole thing, yeah. And then, so Holly Martens comes here on the prospect that he's gonna have work. And when he actually meets, um, with Lime on the Ferris wheel, there, Lime offers to cut him in on what he's doing, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that the whole thing is like they never say Holly never says what the work is supposed to be. But I'm kind of thinking that Harry Lyme is saying to himself, well, listen, I got this great racket going here selling watered-down penicillin that's basically killing people, but I'm making a huge profit off it, right? Yeah. And I can cut you in on this. Now, I know he didn't – I guarantee he didn't spell out any of that to Holly, but I'm pretty sure that's why he's bringing Holly here. Holly's yeah. a pretty smart yeah. guy.
2: He's loyal,
1: obviously, because this whole film, like he comes there and he's dead, and then the British guy – in the bar, when they're in the bar, tells them, listen, I'll get you a ticket home. You could be on the plane tomorrow. We'll put you up in a hotel for the night, right? But all he's got to do is get on that plane and you don't have a movie and nothing happens, right? Yeah. Uh, Ollie goes on his merry way back to America, does his writing. You know? And Harry Lime goes on doing what he's doing and Anna does her thing, right? But the whole thing is that um, Ollie won't let this go. Ollie's no. like, I'm loyal to my friend here. Like, I want to know what happened here. Because he gets different information. Like, the Baron says, oh, well, he was dead. He was crossing the street, got hit by a car. By the time I got there, he was dead. Yeah. Oh, but he says certain things. And Holly's like, wait a second. You just told me he was dead when he got there. So what's going on? Here?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then the porter, who doesn't speak very good English, is the one who mentions the third man at this. It's, it's the Baron. It's Popescu. It's this third man but then the porter doesn't want to get involved because he's worried for his life, and, well, that doesn't really help him anyway, because he ends up getting killed, right? Yeah. But the whole thing is Holly could have let this go at any point. Holly didn't need to get involved except for the fact that he's loyal to his friend, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing, man. This is about loyalty between people, and what happens when that loyalty goes askew because these two men are from totally different moral objectives here, moral high grounds or low grounds right yeah holly doesn't want any part of it when 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 they're on the ferris wheel and Wells goes to cut him in he's like i don't want you part of that like i don't want to do that i just want you to give yourself in i know that's not going to happen but we have to work this out where you know like i can't be part of that yeah and that like it's beautiful because at one point toward the end he's like hey listen i'm just gonna go back to america can you fly me to the airport and then the uh, drive, you know, the the military guy drive in the airport. He's like, "I just want to make one stop. If you don't mind, we will be quick." And then he takes Holly into the hospital and shows him all these kids and all these people that have been affected by the bad penicillin. And it's amazing because you get a perspective shot, which shot from the character's point in the bed, and you see like the frame at the bottom of the bed, the foot of the bed. Mm-hmm. You never see these people. You don't know what they look like. But it's horrifying, even more horrifying, because you don't see them, I think. Right? Yeah. But Holly sees them, he clearly knows what's going on. Holly can't live with them. So you have these flawed characters. Like, there are suggestions that Holly's an alcoholic. He does get drunk, I think, twice in the film. You know?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, He certainly likes his drinks. And, you know, you get the idea that this is a flawed character, but his one... Thing that I wouldn't count as a character, Flores' loyalty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that drives the whole film as far as his character goes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So let's talk
1: about let us talk about the cuckoo speech. Right? <laughs> it has to come up. This is the one thing I knew long before I ever saw this movie, and I wish I had it pulled up on my computer, but my computer shut off right now because I didn't want that. So basically, I was on the Ferris wheel, right? Because, oh, actually, let's step back for a second. Right, He's out in the alley, it's night, and there's somebody in the shadows, and a cat's looking this character's boot in the shadows, right? And Holly, they sent people to kill him earlier in the night, so he thinks this is somebody coming to murder him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all oh, right, he's across the street, and he's like, all right, come out now. Come out now, I got you. You can do what you want. I don't really care. And they keep this character framed in shadows until it's brilliant the way it's done because he's Holly's making so much noise in the street that it wakes a woman up and she opens her window and puts on a light and the light flashes for a second and you see Orson Welles.
2: Yeah. And he sees
1: Orson Welles and he says, Harry. And then Harry disappears into the night. Right? Mm. So they end up on the Ferris wheel and it's like, hey, listen, I know what you're doing here. I know what you've done. And he's like, I've been to the police. And he's like, look, that was a bad, bad move. And then he's like, look, I'm not a bad guy. Like, look at all this. And it's, it's really his, his his view of humanity mm-hmm. physically from where he's at and his view of humanity morally is absolutely disgusting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's like, look, feel those dots down there, all right? Now you're telling me that it's a sin that these people are dying and you're me responsible for killing them. But if you just saw those dots down there and I gave you $20,000 per dot to eliminate each dot, would you have the same feeling if it was just those dots? Mm. Like, that's all they are to me. These aren't people. This is just business, you know? And then he says, you know, basically, if I gave you $20,000 a pop to do that, I don't think you'd be on such high moral ground. And then he suggests, hey, listen, from this height, it would be easy to get rid of you because I could throw you off the well, if there were here, nobody would have any questions. Right? Yeah. So, they finally get to the point where they're on the ground, and they have come to a stalemate here. Neither one has given an inch of things. And then, <laughs> and Orson Wells, this is a brilliant speech, and he wrote it. And I'm glad he did, and that, that Reed decided to keep this in the movie, because it's absolutely brilliant. He basically says, hey, listen, you know, the Borgias for 30 years ran Italy, right? And in that time, they had warfare and barbarism and murder and all these, you know, all these terrible things. But they also, they also produced some of the greatest artists, some of the greatest art, some of the greatest thinkers in the history of man within those thirty years. Mm-hmm. The Swiss, all right. The Swiss had five hundred years of peace and democracy. Nothing ever happened. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs>
0: That's
1: a fucking great speech, Brian. Yeah. Because the whole. Thumbs up the entire movie. Like, it's like, hey, listen, there's all this barbarism and war going on here, but there's things to be made of that. There's, within this chaos, there are things that can be created here, whereas relative peace, that doesn't do anybody any good, especially somebody like Harry Lime, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that that speech is such a, such an iconic speech, and it's, you know, it's, it's, like you said, I heard of that long before, I heard that speech long before I ever saw the movie. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it informs the film, right? Yeah.
0: Well, and the thing is, I mean, it it does, in its own way, it brings up a... It, it brings up a fascinating philosophical discussion of, like, obviously people love the idea of peace and, you know, just peace and not... No violence and stuff like that but at the same time i mean you know there you know there are things that are created as a result of violence and disruption and chaos that will live on forever and you know there's and if if all you have is peace what are you drawing off of for inspiration it's 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 a fascinating idea um
1: and See? it fits in perfectly with his character, too, because yeah. he's taking advantage of all that violence and all that chaos of a world war that devastated two-thirds of the globe for his own personal advantage here. And he's, he's profiting from it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, it not only is this great speech about how terrible humanity is, but it's also this great speech about that, that zeroes in on exactly what Harry Lime is and why. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, talking about things that are uh, created in terms of inspired by uh, moments of violence and and a chaotic world, uh, we would be remiss, obviously, to talk about The Third Man without bringing up the remarkable Zither soundtrack by Anton Karras. Uh,
1: which is the world's most famous zither score in a film,
0: and honestly, one of the most important scores I think to a movie when it comes to the way it plays into the narrative of the film. I I think there the 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 use of the zither. It's it's an instrument that s- sounds both chipper and melancholy. And that makes a lot of sense for the main character, but also the city of Vienna in general when you're you're talking about the third man because of the fact that I mean it's there's a there's a sadness to the city that has basically been overrun by corruption, but there's also an a cheerful uh, potential uh, opportunity for potential in this, which is ultimately what Holly is coming here for. I mean, he's coming to, you know, realize some potential to get away from the life that he has before. Uh, and then, as we get further and further, we we see that melancholy really play out in in the film.
1: But it's also perfect because I like that you mentioned about Holly coming there for. Potential, because his whole relationship with the female here—the well, she's not really a femme fatale—but his whole relationship with her, she's Lime's ex-girlfriend. She has certain intel about things that she has, you know, seen from uh, from Harry and what she knows about him. And like I said, she kind of reveals that as she goes. But he very much falls for her, and there's that also that grasping for potential to say, hey, maybe. Even though I've come here and my friend is dead, maybe I will never figure this out, or maybe I will, and maybe all this stuff is crashing down around me, but maybe there's the potential here for me to fall in love and make something of my life, like have that connection. Because there's, there's this, that, that back and forth between them where they mention something. He says, "Harry, I think Harry stole his girl at one point, and she's like, oh, she says something about the girl. He's like, oh, that was like nine years ago, you know? i a feeling that even on the relationship front, like Holly just, it seems like the only relationship before he meets her that means anything into his life is Harry. here. He doesn't yeah. seem to have any like you said, he comes there without any pressing needs in America. Like, It doesn't seem like he has any ties you know? And I think that that's the same way on a romantic, emotional level with women and I think that's why he's so fascinated and falls in love with her to the point where he's, he makes a deal where there's a whole thing about a passport being a legitimate Harry forged her, a passport. And then Harry turned her in on that to use her as a pawn. Yeah. Right? So the whole thing is that, hey, listen, you know, I'll do what you want me to do with Harry. I'll sell out my friend. I'll sell out my own morals if you get her passport and get her on a train.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? So there's that whole element. But getting back to the zither, it's just, first off, it's, uh, yeah, I talked about gaslight, the credits actually being over the gaslight. This film starts with credits over a zither playing. And I think that's yeah. fascinating as well, because that zither is really a like you said, it's a perfectly it's perfectly emblematic of what this film is. It's that that, you know, there's there's potential and joy and happiness in the in the sound, but there's also that melancholy on the underside that informs this film to a T. Yeah.
0: No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean in in this movie just it it's this, this is this is one of those movies that really does when when people talk about vibes in movies, I this this movie is very much a movie about vibes and it 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 comes from the location, comes from the weariness of Cotton's character, it comes from the soundtrack. And that's not a bad thing in this movie. I I think it's an essential part of this movie. And why this movie's connected the way as for, um, seventy five years actually. I think we're we're coming up on seventy five yeah, years for it. So yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a rich film. I mean, it's it's usually on one of the streaming sites. I believe it's on. I believe I watched it off of uh Max, but I think it's also on Criterion Channel right now. And it's it's it if you're interested in Film Noir, at some point you get to the third man and I I think it's it's just a fantastic uh film and it's it's a great example of uh Cotton's talent just in general. Absolutely. So we are going to round up the uh, trio. We're going to go back in time to 1943 and a film from the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, his thriller Shadow of a Doubt. And this is one... It's funny because of the fact that I thought I might have seen this one before, but I could not completely remember and then as it unfolded i realized oh yes i've definitely seen this one before it's been a while but i definitely seen this one and so um joseph cotton plays charlie oakley who is a uh, who who comes to visit and live with his sister's family in California. Um, Unbeknownst to them, he is a suspect in a serial killer, uh, in a string of serial killers. And his niece, uh, also named Charlie, played by Teresa Wright, starts to realize that something is not quite right about him. And... The film becomes a psychological uh, dance between the two of them, and uh, this this is I I love that you know we we sort of talked about it before recording. I love the you you wanted to touch on this one last, and I love that that ended up being the choice because of the fact. I mean, I I think as we follow Cotton's characters throughout this this trio of films, we see a progression from somebody who's more, more often a genuine hero in Gaslight to somebody who is, uh, who becomes a true villain. And then there, but then is somebody who's in between and get in a uh, third man. And I think that's, that's really a fascinating progression that we follow in this film
1: no i think that's great and joseph cotton really not a guy who played a lot of uh villains so it's fascinating on that end i kind of asked you to do it this way and i thought this was a great sequence because we start off with you know this beautiful palatial house in london then we go to the you know war-torn city of vienna and as an American who's never traveled to Europe, those places are very, you know, fantastical and very different for me. And then we it up by bringing it back right down to small-town America in a screenplay written by Mr. Small-Town America himself, Thornton Wilder, by the way. <laughs> so, Mr. Our Town himself. But yeah, I thought this was a fascinating look at things to do it this way because... If you want to see that Joseph Cotton isn't the same in every film, watch these three films in the order we discussed them. Yeah. And then you get you know, and you realize that he can flex his muscles in different ways and he is very, very compelling as the bad guy in this.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because of the fact that, I mean, I, I think that, I think we're with these three films, I think we're also touching on another thing that kind of made... The Academy, not quite sure why, you know, unsure to nominate him because of the fact that I I think the Academy sometimes is not quite sure what to do with actors who are capable of a wide variety. I mean, a a lot of the people who they tend to nominate and win, who tend to win in the Oscars... Uh, they it tends to be people who have you can kind of get a gauge on as in terms of their performances and the people who are more um more rewarded tend to be those who you can kind of nail down their persona and i think with cotton you really can and this is this is an amazing example I I think, to a certain extent, this might be the best performance of the three for me. I mean, it's up there with the third man uh, for me, as far as these three uh, Joseph Cotton performances. Um, I think this might be his best one, and I think a big part of that is the dynamic he has with Teresa Wright. And, you know, Teresa Wright is an actress who... She has a lot of heavy lifting in this movie and I love what I love the way the characters developed how she's somebody and I love the way the dynamic is developed I mean we get the idea that these two are connected by something more than just a name at the beginning because of the fact that she's like oh I'm going to I'm going to see if uh Uncle Charlie's going to come and it's like oh he's already sent a telegram saying he's on his way. So now granted, we know why he's done that but they don't know why they've why he's done that and I I just love the way that this turns the screws of uh, suspense in a way that's very different in from a lot of Hitchcock films and I think that's that's, that's what makes this one stand out, even, even among the very best, I think.
1: Well, I've already committed heresy by saying that I'm not a fan of Citizen Kane. I'm going to commit double heresy by saying I'm not really a Hitchcock guy. I appreciate everything he's done. I understand how brilliant his compositions are. There's never anything so much as a wasted frame. Everything in the mise-en-scene means something within the movie and has a connection to it. I totally agree with all that. Um, And I guess I can prove that I'm not really a Hitchcock fan by telling you that my favorite Hitchcock movie is To Catch a Thief, and I may be the only human being ever to have said that, okay? Um, The thing here is that, and I, I guess I should appreciate this, but it's so offsetting because this is not a mystery. We know straight out from the beginning that Joseph Cotton, is the Merry Widow Killer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's why this this movie has... It doesn't do it for me. I mean, I, I think it's a great film. It just doesn't do it for me quite as much as it does for you. Because it's like, okay, you gave away the ghost right at the beginning. Now, again, this turns into a case of what people do and don't know that. Right? Mm-hmm. So, the family is obviously involved in hero worship of Uncle Charlie here. Yeah. Right? like the bee's knees, he's the greatest thing on earth to these people, and they love him, and they're so happy, especially Trump, his
2: Mm -hmm. namesake,
1: right? He's just enamored with him, she's fascinated, she's so thrilled that he's coming to visit. So, what I really appreciated out of this more than anything is, once she starts to come into the know of what's really going on here, then the relationship turns, and the way they interact, like their interactions from the beginning of the film right until the end, are really what sell a film for me more than anything
0: else. Yeah, Ryan. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, think I that, mean,
1: yeah, no credit to right because she does a great job of standing up to Joseph Cotton and being his equal in mm-hmm. the film. Yeah. Right with acting.
0: <clears throat> for for the record, I adored "To Catch a Thief." For a long time, it was my favorite Hitchcock film too. Sure. So you are not alone. I no, I mean I. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We're we're going off topic here, and we can talk about *To Catch a Thief* later. Um, but um, one of the things I will say about that movie is, you know, while we're on the topic of Hitchcock, I I just again, sort of like *The Third Man*, I just love the vibe of that movie. Like it's such a laid back film, and such an easy movie. And then obviously it it anchor. It's on the chemistry of Cary Grant and grace kelly which is just magical in that
1: film you have these beautiful people in the in this beautiful locale with this beautiful jewelry and these it's, beautiful costumes it,
0: it is is the same reason that Soderbergh's oceans 11 is just such an entertained watch it, it's the reason Absolutely. those type of hollywood movies are just easy to watch because of the fact that they're they're all about watching pretty people do things that we would not necessarily do in real life. Um yes. but going back to Shadow of a Doubt, I mean, yeah, you're right. I yeah, I mean, let's face it, this is not the first time that Hitchcock's given the game away before the end in movies. I mean, he he had done it before he would do it later on in Rope, he would do it in Vertigo, very famously. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's basically, the the question becomes how people learn the truth versus when people, oh, as well as works. when they learn the truth. And yeah. one of the things that I think is fascinating about this is young Charlie, it, uh, niece Charlie ultimately makes a choice here that is more that is more about protecting her family than is her uncle but you can kind of see it as a choice of still being somebody who appreciates her uncle as well by not making the choice to admit to everybody else this is who he was this is who he really was i mean i again i think it is ultimately more about the family but um it's it's also something that really makes for an interesting choice in this in this finale i mean we we've got three movies here where really interesting choices are made in, in the finales of these movies and What does that mean for the characters? What does that mean for the relationships of other characters in the movie? And it's 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 fascinating.
1: I think that it's it's I can make a bridge between Holly Martins and her in the way that Holly's out to protect, even though he knows that Harry's. Even though he knows how terrible he's become aware of how terrible he is, he doesn't want to be the one to sell him out. Yeah. You know? And I think it's the same thing with with young Charlie here, where Mm -hmm. she says to himself, hey, listen, you know, I've worshipped this guy forever. I now have to take him off that pedestal that I put him on, but I don't want to be the one responsible for selling him out. Yeah. And a big thing about this movie is it keeps going back and forth about how much... Charlie's mother, Charlie, the young Charlie's mother, Char- Cotton's sister, would take it if she found all this out. That's the whole thing, right? And it's 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 very like even at the end, like the end after he's been th- well, spoilers here. Even after the end, after he's been thrown, at thrown off the train, as she, young Charlie is talking to her paramour, the the investigator there about you know, Charlie and what he was and all that, you hear this speech going on in the back, it's obviously a eulogy, saying about what a great man Charlie Oakley was and how yeah. he has, you know, a great addition to the town. So you know that even though he's now no longer a threat to anybody that there's still that level of worship for him in the mm-hmm. town, because he donated money to a medical facility, apparently, a hospital, and then that even though she's no longer part of it, you kind of get the thing that the mother still thinks that he died a hero. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, absolutely.
1: So it's it's just so weird because it's selling what he was to the family, even though she knows. And she's got to carry on with the secret, knowing what he really was, and that he was this merry widow killer, that that money that he gave, that portion of the money that he gave away to the hospital heirs obviously from one of the widows he killed. Yeah. But what I really am fascinated with about Cotton is because you see him at the beginning and you know what he is. I and mean, he alludes to the authorities and hops on the train, right? He shows mm-hmm. up and all of a sudden he's happy Uncle Charlie. Everyone's happy to see him. Yeah. Things start a bit weird when he doesn't want to take photographs. He doesn't want to take any photographs of him because he knows that he, – he's, he's aware that people are on to him. Yet. And he right. just has to be aware of, make sure that he covers himself, right? Yeah. So the whole thing about his – like there's a scene at the dinner – table after some of this has come out and you know young Charlie has also been already been given a key to what what her uncle is really and she goes he goes through this whole sp- sp- spiel about how these disgusting fat widowers with all this money sit yeah, and they gamble away the money and they pay the money for food and they're just like swine I believe he uses the word swine and his you get a key into what his real view of humanity is oh yeah and again, it's it's really troubling.
0: It's really unnerving.
1: But it's the whole thing again. It's that dark side of the American dream. We get it to Charlie's family, and the word normal keeps coming up. The cop says it. Charlie says it. to young Charlie. But the whole idea is that these are just normal people. Yeah. And Charlie at one point says, I don't want to be normal. Like, I want to be something better than yeah. But the whole idea that this is your normal American town, this is your normal American family, right? Nothing. If Charlie doesn't come home, nothing fascinating is ever going to happen to these people, right? Right. And there's this great scene in the library that keys that out because she tries to get across the street and the stopping guard crosses her because she wants to check the papers today to see if yeah. there's anything about the Married Widow killers. She gets to the, and she's crossing the street, she sees all the lights are going out in the library, and she knocks on the door, and the librarian comes off, and the librarian is clearly pissed off at this point, right? Yeah. He's like, hey, listen, I can't let you in, right? And it's like, well, listen, I just need a minute or two to look at today's papers, and she's like, well, listen, if I let, if I let you in this one time, I'll have to do this a thousand times for other yeah. people. It's like yeah okay lady, how much traffic do you think you're gonna get at nine o'clock at night at your local library, right? Yeah like it's so insular and small town minded that this lady thinks that she's in like a prominent position in the world because she's a librarian. Right? Oh yeah, yeah there's that whole idea of being normal and when Harry gives that, well not Harry I'm sorry, I'm getting movies mixed up here when Charlie gives that speech about the old widows and how they're disgusting and they waste money and they just jam food in their faces and they play Pinochle they're wasting all this money that's there that, that, it, it really keys you into the the abnormal side of American life
2: yeah, and that
1: darker edge to things and I think that's where I really start to appreciate this movie because that's Hitchcock. You know, that's perfect Hitchcock saying, hey, listen, every one of my movies, like there are these, there's this small hotel in the middle of nowhere, the small woman working in a, a place who steals his money. And then there's these bloody murders coming out of what should be normal America, you know? Right. And that's a, throughout his thing that these are just like, you know, like for the most part, his, his characters, his, his protagonists are everyday people, right? Yeah. Living in quote unquote, normal America. And then you have this whole dark underbelly. And when Cotton gives that speech, it's spot on perfect, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, it's fantastic. But like you said, it's also disturbing because yeah. this is the kind of quest that, number one, they do exist in the real world. And number two, you know, these are the kind of things that Charlie's sister and his his brother-in-law and his family probably never even consider. You know?
2: Yeah.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. No, I mean, we, we do very much get the
0: no, I mean, one of the things that is so interesting about uh, the dynamics here is that um, the the sisters' family is very much uh, middle class. And, you know, they, they don't necessarily have predominant, uh, prominent places in society, um, but they are respected in society. And, I mean, you know, he is talking about things that, yeah, they wouldn't even necessarily ever think about and necessarily ever have on their minds, but the way he does it, it's so unnerving. I mean, it really does open. It it really, that's where uh, the niece's possibilities of, well, what's going on here, you know, really comes into uh, play.
1: Like, and there's another scene in, in the bank. They go into the bank, and I believe that Cotton's going there to deposit this fortune that he's got, yeah. right? Yeah. And his brother-in-law is a banker, right? And he goes up to the window and he starts making jokes about the bank being held up, right? Mm-hmm. And the brother-in-law says, oh, you know, Charlie, you can't really say those types of things in a bank. And you can tell in that scene that Charlie has such a disdain for small town America, that he's mocking it by just going, and he keeps leaning into this thing about the bank being robbed, and you could tell that his brother-in-law just started to squirm, going, "Oh my God, I hope this doesn't come back to me. Like, I hope it doesn't, but yeah. I hope it doesn't. Yeah, doesn't work poorly on me what my brother-in-law is saying, you know? Right. And I think it's fascinating. <laughs> like you can tell, like Cotton's character disdains this small life, and he's got to put on this facade and pretend to be in love with it because he's got to hide out here
0: yeah exactly um and then once uh once uh young Charlie realizes what's or has the suspicions about her uncle, there are some great scenes that play out i I love the bar scene between them where um we we do start to get more of a sense of you know the fact that it is going to be. Uh, you know, how much is young Charlie going to push him on this and how much danger that is that putting young, her in? And I, I think that is a that's a fascinating way that this story progresses.
1: And that scene is funny too, because I'm like, how does this bar exist in this town? <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything <laughs> is beautiful. But that's showing you that even in this town, there are these dark little pockets that people probably don't talk about, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so much of it is just based on the whole idea of, like, somebody who seems to do very good things and can be well-loved by people, it can be a monster as well. I mean, we've certainly seen that over the years through many people uh in in society and uh yeah I mean the, the ending especially the, the, the way the ending plays out seems very uh the the ending feels very contrived in a Hitchcock suspense thriller way and it ends very abruptly too it seems like but yeah that that scene where that scene at the very end where the choice is made to uh, cover up, for lack of a better term, uh, Uncle Charlie's uh, true nature is 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 one that really the way the fact that that's what we're left with is really just a fascinating choice on the part of the filmmakers. But like you said, it it's kind of pointing to this idea of regular America and the dark underbelly underneath.
1: But it also keys into the idea that ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah. If we don't know that these bad things exist, we can continue as a small town America and not be bothered by it, you know? Yeah. So instead of wow, this guy murdered three women, tried to murder one of our own citizens, and he fell off a train uh, instead of that, we have, well, we have a revered member of society. We'll look back on him finally and miss him forever. And now we can go on with our normal lives. Yeah. Because let's face it, people in a town like that don't want to be challenged. They mm-hmm. want to be normal. Most part. They don't want abnormalities like, you know, serial killers throwing women off trains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yes, yeah. I think that. I think that as a way to cap it off, I think that that is three for three in brilliant films. Three different directors, three very different roles for Joseph Cotton, all of which are stellar. Yeah. I think he shines in every one of these movies in different ways. And I think that if you wanted to encapsulate and say, why should should we still be thinking about Joseph Cotton? Why should anybody watch Joseph Cotton movies? What was the big deal about him? I think if you watch these three films in the order that I suggested, that you have a perfect setup and for perfect explanation through his roles about why he should be more revered than I think he really is.
0: Yeah, I agree completely about that. And I, I appreciate you, Phil, uh, for bringing this topic to the podcast. I mean, this was, this was a topic that you wanted to explore, and I love the fact that we were able to explore it through these through the context of these three films, and you're absolutely right. Uh, Cotton is somebody who should be remembered for the tremendous work they brought as well as the tremendous range that he shows, especially in movies like these.
1: Absolutely, and of course I want to thank you for not only entertaining me by you know going along with our topic here but having me on. You know, I always love to join you on Sonic Cinema. The three or four times a year I'm here, I take it as a great honor, and it's always a joy to talk about great films and sometimes not so great films with you, Brian.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I, I I look forward. I know we've already talked about a couple of other discussions uh, later in the year. I I really am looking forward to uh, continuing the discussion for
1: with you. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It was a joy to be on Sonic Cinema again today.
0: I'd like to thank Phil once again for joining me on the podcast. It's always great to talk to him, and I look forward to talking to him more in the future this year. We've got some really interesting discussions to talk about, to uh, bring to you, and I think there will be ones that uh, that are going to be fun to listen to. And uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Song Podcast. Thank you very much, as always, for subscribing, rate, and review whenever you uh, listen to an episode that you enjoy. Share it as much as possible. Uh, if you can subscribe to the Patreon, that'd be great. But ultimately, my, the most important thing is that you continue to uh, listen and uh, read the work at www. Sonic-Cinema.com Thank you very much.